this week on the Backtable Podcast. These combination units, the hybrid units, CT and fluoro, really allow uh, us to switch among the different modalities to to the one that suits us best for the part that we're treating. So, for instance, uh, sometimes I'll do an embolization first for a hypervascular lytic renal metastases to the iliac bones embolized first so i that's a local pain treatment it also prevents um, bleeding in the next step when i push the patient in the scanner and uh, perform a uh, screw fixation sure so uh, there, there are a lot of different creative options with those combination units Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. Today's episode is sponsored by Osteocool RF Ablation by Medtronic. Osteocool is internally cooled radiofrequency ablation technology that can be used in the spine and peripheral bone. Its dual probe capabilities allow you to approach a lesion with two probes simultaneously for tumor coverage. Know where the heat is going and map out your ablation zone before treatment. You'll receive a controlled ablation as the generator automatically measures impedance and modulates power to deliver energy consistently. Visit medtronic.com osteocool to learn more. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenters and moderators only and do not reflect Medtronic's views. This is Michael Barraza, your host for today's episode, recording from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Today, we're going to be talking about percutaneous ablation of osseous metastases. We previously covered ablation of spine metastases. More recently, we discussed introducing spinal ablation in conjunction with radiation oncology. Today, we're going to be focusing on treating extraspinal bone tumors. And it's an honor to welcome interventional radiologist, Dr. Steve Yevich from MD Anderson and UT Health Science Center to help guide us through this. Steve, thanks for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you for having me. So, Steve, between Hopkins and MD Anderson, you've gone from one oncology mecca to the next, but you had an interesting stop in between. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the clinical fellowship you did in interventional oncology in Paris? Of course. It was a great year. Um, essentially, how it worked out was yeah, I was finishing up my fellowship at Johns Hopkins, and I really wanted to learn the latest and greatest in interventional oncology. And I uh, asked the faculty at Hopkins, I said, well, where, where should I go to learn this, the latest and greatest of interventional oncology? And uh, I can go anywhere. I was single. I traveled and, and interested in, in really focusing on this career development. And they unanimously told me to go to this hospital in Paris, France, uh, called Gustave Roussy. And funny enough, I had asked the same question a year earlier to Marshall Hicks, who is the department head at, um, MD Anderson, and he had given me a business card. And on that business card was the name of the department head of interventional oncology at the same hospital. So all, all people pointed to the same department, to the same man who was Terry DeBear. And, uh, that's what uh, made me decide to go over there and, and learn, uh, these new techniques. So how did you, how did you set that up? You just take a business card call and say, bonjour. And, and just set that thing up just over the phone? That was basically it. I, I'd sent him an email. And um, at, at that t- time, I didn't know how to call to France. And I, I don't know. How. Yeah. So I, I sent him an email and uh, he kindly replied. Uh, he's quite a busy, busy man, but he makes time for everyone. 
And he said, sure, let's make it happen. And about six months later, I had learned enough French to pass a basic uh, <laughs> French test at the Alliance Francaise in uh, Washington, D.C. Right on. I had completed all my visa paperwork and I had submitted to be, a, to be formally enrolled as a resident slash fellow in the uh, French medical education system. That's awesome. What a unique experience. Um, and, you know, the, the latest and greatest is, is clearly a torch that you carried with you to MD Anderson, you know, perusing through your publications, I noticed a very wide variety of topics that covers essentially the gamut of oncologic interventions in our specialty. But in particular, you've published extensively on ablation and other percutaneous therapies for osseous metastatic disease. So would you mind starting by just sharing how or why this has become a major part of your practice and, and how it's evolved over these last five, you know, I guess, been five years since you've been out? Yes, I really have to attribute my development to this group in uh, France. They did a wide range of treatments and really the, their mantra was everyone should be good at everything. And uh, they certainly are. So one of the things they taught me was how to treat bone uh, lesions, by, either by ablation, embolization, or fixation with cement or screw placement. And, and among the other things, uh, you know, liver, kidney treatments, lung treatments. And uh, so when I returned back to the U.S., I really wanted to work in a, a large oncology center. And I interviewed at several, and MD Anderson seemed to uh, fit uh, the bill for me at that stage. And they hired me, thankfully. And when I showed up, I said, well, uh, thank you for having me. What should I do from here on out? Uh, what do you want me to focus on? And they said, well, we have enough people doing liver treatments and we have enough people doing kidney treatments. How about you start on a uh, bone and, and maybe from there go into lung? And I said, sure, that sounds good. And so, you know, you, you obviously had a pretty good background of doing these in France, but, you know, how did you grow it? At, at MD Anderson, you know, how did you, how did you grow the practice just from starting out? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think the most important thing I had to learn was how to identify the individual needs of the hospital to first off is what do the referred providers uh, want? What makes their life easier? The second is what is the patient mix? Where are they coming from? How do they get referred to me? What are they interested in? And so it took probably about a year to understand that system. And it was a lot of self-promotion. It was a lot of me just emailing and calling providers, going to give a small little presentations in their tumor boards or their morning meetings. And eventually uh, certain oncologists would send me patients here and there. Some surgeons would send me patients here and there. And, and typically there were the very challenging cases where a good outcome was not really expected, but there was nothing else that they could offer that patient. Sure. And so they were hoping I could do something for them. Well, you know, it, it's interesting coming from, you know, a renowned cancer center like MD Anderson, you're probably dealing with referring doctors that, that probably know more about the available treatments than, than some of the average oncologists out in the community. But, you know, in your experience, you know, you know both starting and where you are now, you know, how do these patients arrive in your clinic? Are they referred for specifically for evaluation for ablation or, or really just help with, you know, either, either tumor control or pain management? That's a great question because what I found was even though these oncologists are just experts in what they do, they are absolutely fantastic. Often they don't know what we can do. And many times when I get refers, referrals now, they 
they just sent a request for help, either for pain palliation or potential for tumor control, or it might just be a referral that says, please evaluate the uh, iliac bone metastasis. And, and that's, that's all it says. And uh, sometimes it's even the, I, I found out later on, and this certainly has been happening more and more in the last year or two, it's the patients that are asking their oncologists or their surgical oncologists for certain treatments. And, and the oncologist will say, well, I, I, I know Steve Yevich or, or one of his colleagues, and I'll reach out to them via email or, or a formal consult to see if this might be an option. Interesting. So, well, we both know that, you know, doing these bone ablations, they're going to vary widely based on lesion, location, associated fracture, et cetera. And then we could easily devote an entire episode to just treating like sacral or acetabular lesions, for example. But I thought we'd try to cover just some of the basics. And, and to begin, you know, one question I had, uh, are, are the vast majority of these that you're doing, are, the, are these palliative interventions or are you doing some of these with more curative intent? The majority are palliative. And I would say between 10 to 20% are really curative. Some might be a mixture where it starts off palliative and, and the tumor locations uh, become more manageable, either by some type of systemic therapy or by my repetitive interventions, and it turns into curative, or vice versa, it might start curative, and, and then the patient unfortunately develops metastases in other locations, and it reverts to palliative focus. It, it's really highly uh, dependent. I think that's why it's so interesting for me and, and fun for me, because every patient is a little different, and it certainly have to exercise a lot of creativity. Are there any other indications that you're using for treating these extra spinal bone lesions? You know, I know, for example, in the spine, you know, occasionally we'll have something come up where, you know, we'll, we'll treat and then cement a lesion for fracture prevention. Mm -hmm. Yes, very similarly in the pelvis, any weight-bearing portion of the body, I might cement or place screws for prevention of uh, fracture or ablation as well. Occasionally, I might do soft tissue ablation around nerves, and that's okay. really to prevent those uh, soft tissue tumors from enlarging and compressing upon a nerve. I only get a few referrals from certain oncologists and surgical oncologists that are mindful about these things. Yeah. Uh, and that takes a lot of education, and, and I do a lot of emails with the referring providers, and I'll occasionally suggest that I can treat a particular lesion that maybe they hadn't referred that patient for just for a preventative purpose in case it grows, it might cause a problem. Sure. That makes sense. So what are, you know, some of the more common locations of the metastases that you're treating? I'd say the most common location is in the iliac bones and the iliac spine, the acetabulum and the iliac crest. That probably is the bulk of the extra spinal disease that I treat. There are occasional rib lesions that will okay. be referred to me for pain palliation. And then oddly enough, some shoulder metastases that also come to me. Ribs, that's pretty tough. I mean, even doing a biopsy a rib lesion is, is hard if it's small. It, it certainly is. It, and the other thing that makes it a bit challenging is the, that ribs are out of plane for us and they're very right. clumber. So to gain access is, can be quite a headache. So, uh, Steve, when you're evaluating a patient with bone metastases, what are the, the primary lesion-specific or anatomic considerations that determine if it's feasible or not for ablation? Right. So ablation, I'd, the first thing I look at is location. What are the surrounding critical structures? that I might damage with that ablation. And those are typically nerves. And I certainly don't want to 
permanently damage a motor nerve that that's paramount concern for me. Sensory nerves, I evaluate whether or not or, or how critical that sensation will be for the patient if that is lost. So that's the, the first thing I look for are surrounding nerves. And there's certainly a few uh, good articles in our IR literature uh, about location of nerves and yeah. damage from ablation. So, you know, I know that this is going to vary by location, but are there any particular contraindications or any problem lesions or locations that, that come up a lot? So in the uh, pelvic, in the pelvis, it's really the sciatic nerve that, that causes the biggest issue for me. Okay. Occasionally the uh, uh, sacral nerve roots, if there's a sacral fracture or sacral lesion. And then the L4 and L5 nerves, as they wrap out of the lower spine, will travel anterior to the sacrum. And that's that's always a location that I'm worried that I might extend an ablation zone in the sacrum and uh, inadvertently damage one of those nerves. Does the type of metastasis matter, you know, in terms of efficacy or safety? No, and that's the great thing about ablation. If if we understand which tools we're using, whether it's a microwave, radiofrequency, or cryoablation, and we're able to apply those tools appropriately, we really can treat any location, any type of tumor. Well, let's 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 take that a little bit farther. You know, what what ablation modalities are using and where? So I'll predominantly for for bone ablations, I'll predominantly use cryoablation. Right. And I tend to do that because number one, it that ablation zone will will propagate through any tissue. So that ice wall will continue to grow, whether there's bone or muscle or or any any type of tissue that's there. It won't damage arteries. So if there's a, a critical artery in that zone of ablation, it's there's a very minimal risk of permanently damaging that artery. And it's also very slow. It's a slow process. So while it does take a lot of my time to make sure I, I do a good ablation and completely cover the lesion, I'm not caught by surprise, and which can sometimes happen with microwave ablation in particular, as it's going through different tissue densities. So have you ever had to do any of these with, you know, where there's already hardware in place? Yes. How do you manage that? Uh, you know, one in terms of, you know, Modality selection to two, you know, not causing any damage. Usually with the uh, metal hardware, I'll, I'll stick to the cryoablation. Mm-hmm. Certainly reach out to the orthopedic surgeons um, routinely and contact with them. And I just alert them that I'm going to do an ablation here. I typically will either have them follow up in my clinic or send them to the orthopedic clinic uh, a month or two later just to evaluate for stability. And it certainly depends on the size of ablation that I'm going to perform, whether it's in whether it, that location is a weight-bearing location. I think that's extremely important in approaching the um, bony structures of the body to identify what are the forces that that bone is supporting and or resisting, rather. Steve, I'm not personally using uh, microwave for bone right now. I'm curious if, if and where you're using microwave so I typically use microwave for large lytic lesions that I would like to ablate rather quickly. Okay. Uh, and particularly if it's a palliative ablation, for instance, large renal lytic okay. lesions in the pelvis or in, the, in a rib perhaps, and the expectation is pain palliation. I love how fast microwave will perform the ablation 
but in, I'm always hesitant for the smaller lesions because I'm not sure where that, the edge of the ablation will be given the different densities typically in, in bone lesions. Another question I have for you, Steve, is, is when and where you perform uh, cementoplasty after ablation and if there are any circumstances where ablation alone is sufficient without cement after? So the only time I inject cement after ablation is if it's a load-bearing or weight-bearing bone. And for instance, the acetabulum, right. the strip of the iliac bone that extends from the sacral ala to the acetabulum, that's the weight-bearing portion. If I'm working in the, um, the scapular neck, that does uh, support the humeral head. So I'd rather that not compress. Certainly the, the vertebral bodies. So those weight-bearing areas. Um, and the only reason why I wouldn't inject cement after ablation in those areas is to monitor for local control. Understood. So, for example, if I have a superior acetabular lytic lesion and it's perhaps a, a patient with oligometastases or perhaps this, this is their only location of disease, I'll do the ablation first and um, recommend that the, the patient uh, use uh, weight-bearing devices such as crutches or a cane for the next month or two until their next PET scan or MRI to evaluate for um, total tumor control. And if there's any recurrence, then I, I can confidently go in there and, and touch up that area and then inject the cement. And if certainly if there's no recurrence, then I can proceed with cement injection and that, that's very comforting for the patient and also for the referring oncologist or surgical oncologist. They like knowing if there's total low, uh, tumor control or not. Sure. Right on. So, Steve, let's talk just for a moment about some of the more advanced techniques that you're doing following ablation. You published on this. You mentioned you learned this in, in France. Um, you know, post-ablation or even, you know, without ablation, um, you know, cemented screw placement for pelvic fractures or, or really anywhere else that you're doing some of these procedures that are otherwise usually done by orthopedic surgeons. Yes, this was a, a great thing for me to learn in uh, Paris. And uh, Frederick Deschamps is the man who taught me. He's really been a pioneer in this, this field that we're growing into. And the reason why IR is, is moving into this arena is that we have the imaging technology that is really superior to the C-arms that surgeons have to use. So the orthopedic surgeons actually have to, or many of them that do these types of procedures, they take an entire year fellowship in order to learn how to do these pelvic screw fixations. And they really focus on trauma. So for the, the niche of interventional oncology, we have the added advantage of the fancy imaging equipment, the image guidance and navigation tools that we can overlay uh, our uh, trajectories on, on our either fluoroscopy or CT and follow those tools. And we also are, are probably the best at cement injection through needles. And I agree. Yeah, it's certainly a, I've heard over and over again from surgeons uh, when they see my work, they just can't imagine how I am able to get the cement where I want it to go without doing an open procedure. And so that's certainly a big advantage of our specialty in, in our practice. So, I mean, it, you know, is the, the screw fixation something you're doing frequently? Yes, it's, uh, I'll, I'll do between two to four cases uh, a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. Any pushback at all from the surgeons or anyone else? Not at this time. I really 
approach this with uh, purpose and forethought. I needed to ensure that my operating area was to the same sta standards as the OR, which luckily enough at MD Anderson, that was the new building that we moved into right when I arrived was to the same standards as OR. And then I approached the orthopedic surgeons. That was the first group I, I reached out to. And I showed him some of the work I'd done before and uh, in France and, and what I'd learned. And, and I worked with them closely on the first few cases in terms of telling them what I was going to do. And so I okay. frequently um, screenshot the pelvis. I'd maneuver it on the, the Leo or the, you know, our imaging devices. And I would draw out either using PowerPoint or paint or whatever, you know, a design tool we have on the computers to show them where I'd put the screw and then I'd draw out where I was going to inject cement. And after a, a several months of, of me doing these types of cases and, and having good results, I, I do that just as a, um, as a courtesy because they've, they've gained confidence in my work. Right, right. I, I do know that in my situation, I certainly benefit from that year of, of training. And, and I know a lot of my current trainees, whether they're residents or fellows, they might not get to do very many of these while they work with me because MD Anderson's such a big place. So right. they might work with me, you know, one or two days a month mm -hmm. and rotate through the other faculty. So many people get started in the U.S. with these types of cases that are unique. Sometimes it's not a bad idea to buddy with orthopedic surgeons, and that certainly brings up differing opinions on, on how close to get to other specialties. Right. Uh, might be a topic for a, a whole other podcast. I, I think you're right. So is it role for pre-ablation embolization in any of your cases? Uh, yes, in two cases. Um, if I want to get local control of a tumor, so if the tumor's small, and, or maybe it's a oligometastatic patient, then I'll, I'll try to get that, that, uh, tumor control. So that's the first reason. The second reason is if it's a very large tumor and I'm worried that the systemic therapy, whether it's chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or, or even radiation therapy might not be effective. And in those cases, I'm worried that these tumor will continue to grow and will outstrip my screw or my cement. And so the work I, all the work I did would have been for not. Uh, got it. Steve, I got one more question for you. And, and you've published on this as well, mainly on the, the role of advanced imaging and in, in performing um, bone ablations or really any other, you know, percutaneous osseous intervention. How's it changed your approach to these or what are you using and, and, and what has this really opened up for you? So there are a few different devices or, or technologies rather that have really expanded the potential. One of them is our intervention tools on any of our equipment. No matter the manufacturer, there's interventional toolkits that will, you can overlay the, the location that you'd like to cement with a certain color, or you can outline it. And, and so under fluoro, that, that outline will stay as you move your fluoroscopy C-arm. So that's the first one. The second one is, are, are these combination units, the hybrid units, CT and fluoro, that really allow uh, us to switch among the different modalities to, to the one that suits us best for the part that we're treating. So, for instance, uh, sometimes I'll do an embolization first for a hy hypervascular lytic 
renal metastases to the iliac bones, embolized first. So I, that's a local pain treatment. It also prevents um, bleeding in the next step when I push the patient in the scanner and uh, perform a uh, screw fixation. Sure. So uh, there, there are a lot of different creative options with those combination units. And the last one is the fusion imaging capabilities where we can fuse either a, a MRI or a PET scan to our fluoro or ultrasound to, to guide needle placement. Right on, Steve. Well, that is about all I've got. Is, is there anything else that it, I didn't cover that, that you want to talk about? No, I think we covered a lot. I'm certainly um, willing to, to come on again in the future if there's something else that comes up. Take you up on that. That sounds good. <laughs> We're grateful, Steve. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And and thanks all of our listeners for joining us today. We'll uh, catch you on the next one. Thank you.